Well, good morning. Uh, greetings, salutations for you home-based internet streaming hipsters. What's up? <laughs> so this has been another uh, fairly eventful week this week. Uh, in case you haven't been paying attention, we now have another new God-appointed king, president. Um, and for many of us, that has led to much rejoicing. And for others of us, that has led to much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And still for others of us, perhaps a deepened despair that we did not have better choices. But the important thing for us all to remember is let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, even if you believe, and I'm not suggesting that this is true one way or the other, but even if you believe that our new current president, or even the last president, were the absolute worst people ever, we still, as believers in Christ Jesus, we should believe what the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So, God keeps his promises, and as we learned and heard at least a time or two through Genesis, he often does it in ways and times that we don't understand. Now, I don't know about you, but it has been some time since God included me in his last political strategy discussion. There's a lot I don't understand. There's so, so much that I don't understand about all of this. But on the plus side, I think we can take great comfort. We should find peace in knowing that there's nothing that God doesn't understand. There's nothing that is beyond his control, and ultimately, his name will be proclaimed in all the earth. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this week's text. <clears throat> Father God, it's a, it's a privilege to be here this morning, and we can take comfort. We can find peace in knowing that you are an absolute sovereign God. There is nothing that escapes your notice. There is nothing beyond your, your control, your ability to impact and influence. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray for all of us who are here who are dealing with all of this, that um, we just learn to put more trust in you. Uh, we just find peace and comfort in knowing that you are in charge. Um, you know how history will play out. We can trust you completely, that this is all working towards that great conclusion where your name will be proclaimed in all the earth. And in the meantime, Lord, help us uh, know what our role is here. We, we all have a role, role to play in the kingdom individually, collectively as a church, uh, in our homes, in the city. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you uh, move among us and show us what you have for us, how we are to impact those around us, uh, that we can be better um, ambassadors of the word. We can be better salt and light in the community. Uh, and I pray that as we gather together around your word this morning, Lord, that we would hear what you have for us in this text. Um, and we, again, we're just honored to be here uh, and worshiping your holy name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, if you weren't napping, you may remember that we covered Paul's interesting allegory, uh, how Hagar, the slave woman, was Mount Sinai, and she was the mother of those who remained slaves to the law, and, and how Sarah was the 
Jerusalem above, and she is the mother of those who are free from the law and free from the curse of the law through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was admittedly kind of a convoluted, somewhat complicated analogy. So I won't take it too personally if you happen to snooze through just a few minutes last week. And yes, I know who you are. Uh, (laughs) Paul's use of, of allegory, though, would have been a little more personally impactful for that first audience. Uh, It was an important part of their heritage, more so than it might be for us, although it certainly pertains to our spiritual heritage as well. So it is instructive for us. And remember, Paul was using this big picture allegory to make a point. The point was about being followers of the law versus followers of the promise, about a works-based salvation versus a grace-based salvation, and about the specific works-based issue that was invading the churches in Galatia, which was circumcision. Is circumcision a requirement, as some were suggesting? Is it a requirement for true salvation, or is it not? I think we're all clear by now that Paul is squarely in the not camp. It is not a requirement for salvation. Therefore, we have seen Paul's repeated messages throughout the book of Galatians um, and his multiple attempts to show the difference between the law and the promise. He has said repeatedly, option one is Jesus is the path to salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, the end. That's how it works. Versus all of the other stuff that we're being told, that the churches in Galatia were being told, that Jesus, it's Jesus plus works. Jesus plus you have to be baptized. Jesus plus you have to partake in communion or speak in tongues or believe in dispensationalism or you can't have any tattoos. Heaven forbid, that'll never get you into heaven. Or you have to wear, you know, long enough skirts or have a short enough beard or whatever other crazy, silly thing we can add on to it that has nothing to do with salvation. And Paul makes that analogy over and over again, as we have seen, between slavery and freedom, which is the theme he continues through the last couple of chapters in Galatians. So we'll start with chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, We've gone through four chapters now. If Paul could take everything that he has said in those four chapters, if he could take everything that he has been teaching over these last four chapters, and he could distill it down into one short, brief statement of truth, well, he did. This is it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It almost seems too easy, doesn't it? It almost sounds too simplistic. This is kind of a, well, duh, kind of a moment. It's like me saying, well, for food, Lene made me food. It makes no sense. It just seems obvious. But of course, it's much more than that. Other translations might use the word liberty instead of freedom, or they might add a word and say, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for liberty that Christ set us free. The big idea here is that Christ has done this work of liberation for us, the result of which we are free. Now, for the converted Jews, that meant that they were free from all of the ceremonial laws and the the temple obligations, all the man-based works that they were having to do. For the believing Gentiles, it meant that they were free from 
whatever pagan customs they were obligated to, whatever obligations they had been doing to work towards their salvation. So whether Jew or Gentile, the works of rituals, the work of obligations, the works of any kind that were tied to salvation are no longer required. Because Christ died for us to set us free. We are free. We can live in freedom. We can live with liberty. Christ did this for us. This is a big deal. And it's even more than just a we're free in the moment kind of thing. Or, or just free from ritual or religious practice. We're not just freed from this particular charge of sin, our latest sin, whatever that was. Almost as if we're being let out on bail. It's not just that kind of freedom. It's not even that we're freed from the consequence of this particular sin or this, this pattern of sin. But we're free from it all, from the weight of sin, from the bondage of sin, from the guilt of sin. We can live in complete freedom from the consequences of all of our sin and even from the consequence of spiritual death because Jesus died in our place. Boy, you talk about a life-changing kind of encounter with liberty. That's what's wrapped up in Paul's single sentence here. Which is why he continues to use this slave analogy. You were a slave, but now, through the work of Jesus, which has already been accomplished on your behalf, you can live free. So don't blow it. Don't blow it. He says, stand firm, therefore. The implication is, stand firm in your freedom. Hang on to it. Fight for it. This is important. Don't lose it. Don't submit, again, to a yoke of slavery. The atoning work of Christ on the cross has set you free from slavery. And if you believe this, if you've accepted this gift of grace, don't even think about moving back into slavery by trying to work towards your salvation, which is where circumcision will inevitably lead you. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, you may recall on several occasions prior, Paul has made this argument that By submitting to just one part of the law, circumcision in this case, if you submit to just one part, you're really, in truth, submitting to the whole of the law. The law, the the, the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, was seen as one comprehensive, all-encompassing, cohesive unit. It was an all-or-nothing kind of affair. You're either responsible to keep all of it or none of it. Now, this... I think we kind of struggle with the idea of this some these days because we're used to, in our day and age, the, the difference in how people approach religion. We have this kind of spiritual buffet mindset. We can pick and choose the parts that we like from all of these different faith systems and make it work for us. You know, we, we line up at the spiritual counter and we grab our tray and we work our way down and say, ooh, that Buddhist cauliflower looks good. I think I'll try some of that. Oh, there's the evangelical meat and potatoes. Yum. Oh, look for dessert. I'm going to have the prosperity gospel pudding. (laughs) Thank you. That made me laugh too. (laughs) 
we, we think we get to select the parts that we like and leave the fundamentalist Brussels sprouts behind. Ooh. The Jews were not allowed to pick and choose their version of the law. They were committed to it. They were submitted to it. All of it. So that if the Jews or the Gentiles were tempted to accept circumcision, they were, in effect, taking on the whole of the law. Their buffet tray would be heaping full of Mosaic law meatloaf. They were committed to all of it. Now, I think we need to point out again here that Paul is not really taking a position one way or the other on circumcision itself. He is not and has not said anything about it being good or bad. Uh, In fact, we're told in Acts 16 that Paul even requested that Timothy be circumcised because it might be helpful to him to reach a wider ministry audience, Jews and Gentiles. So Paul could see the effectiveness, maybe the benefit of circumcision in some cases. So he's not concerned about circumcision itself, but only concerned about circumcision being required as a means to salvation. If you accept it, Paul says, if you accept circumcision under those terms, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. And to make sure they got the point, he repeats it. I testify again, if you accept circumcision under these circumstances, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And then there is this kind of amusing little play on words, I think. I mean, we're talking about circumcision, right? Paul says, if you become circumcised, well, then you're severed from Christ. Yeah, severed, as in cut off from. It also means, the word severed means to put an end to, to cause to come to an end. So Paul's emphasis here is on the actions of the circumcisee. Paul says, if you choose to be circumcised, then you are choosing to be severed from Christ. You will do the severing by accepting circumcision. You will cause the grace relationship to come to an end. It's not that Christ is going to leave you, but that you leave Christ. By accepting the law, you're now going to be judged by how well you keep the law. And we all know how that goes. Versus how you would be judged according to grace. So to make it clear, Paul is not making the argument that a person can lose their salvation through one bad decision. That's not what he's claiming here. If that were true, we would all be severed from Christ. We would all have to be judged by the law. So it's not just the act of circumcision that results in being separated from Christ, but it's the motivation behind it. It's the reason behind it. That's what's concerning. That's what would put an end to our relationship with Christ. It's the act of or uh, the motivation of working towards salvation. That's the problem. The act itself, not that big a deal. But the motivation is all important. It's why Scripture continually says God judges the heart. Because he knows what our motivation is. We can only judge by what we see of people, what, what, we, what we hear of people. But God judges the heart. He knows what our motivation is. So Paul's point is that this, the basis of salvation, the process of salvation, is foundationally significant. It is available to us only by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, period. That's the only successful approved process or formula for the forgiveness of sins. It's like basic math. 
2 plus 2 equals 4. If we add anything else to it, the answer changes. The problem changes. It becomes an entirely different problem. So it is with grace plus faith plus Christ. That equals salvation. If we swap out Christ for something else, if we add circumcision, if we do anything else to that problem, it changes the entire problem. It changes the answer. So in that sense, the plan of salvation is kind of like the law. It is all or nothing. It is, as Scripture says it is, and if we reject it or we change it, then we take on the less than desired outcome, which is a severing in our relationship with Christ. And that falls totally on us. That's our decision at that point. So Paul's point is, if you claim to be a Jesus follower, but then you choose to be circumcised to help in your salvation, then you never really believe this formula. You never really believe the gospel as it is. And at that point, Christ is of no advantage to you. You are severed. You fall away from grace. And it's you who has moved away. It's not that your salvation has been stripped from you. You never really had it if you so easily move away from the truth of the gospel. In verse 5, he says, We ourselves are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. I think this is Paul, Paul's attempt to kind of maybe empathize with the audience here. He says, look, I, I understand your desire for righteousness. We're eagerly waiting for it as well. We're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness, but it comes through the Spirit, by grace, by faith in Christ, not through your own efforts. But because of the salvation offered by faith in Christ, we're considered righteous even now, even though we're not. And we know we're not. We know we're not righteous. We feel it. We have songs about it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So as followers of Christ, we long to do better, we long to be better, but we fall short. And even then, as a result of our trust, as a result of our faith in Jesus, we are considered righteous. And there will come a time when we are truly righteous. Whether it's in, at our death or when Christ comes or wherever we fall on that spectrum, when we stand before the throne of God and are declared righteous, it will be complete. And there's nothing we can do to move that process along. So Paul confirms all of this with the act of circumcision itself doesn't really matter one way or another. Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't count for anything. Whether or not you're circumcised will not enter into your salvation. It's not like we're going to get to heaven and Peter's going to be standing at the gate saying, okay, i got to check first. It's not going to matter. It's your faith that counts. It's what you believe in. But here's the rub. Even though your circumcision doesn't add to your salvation, when you make it a matter of faith to save you, it lessens your salvation. It subtracts from your salvation. It moves you from the grace equation to the works equation. And Paul ends the thought with circumcision or not doesn't matter. It's only faith working through love that counts. True faith works itself outward. It, it 
doesn't focus on me or my needs, but it produces a living and active love towards others, which the Galatians church had apparently been exhibiting. They had been doing well up until this recent confusion, but now they're moving away from it as a, as a result of these false teachers, and Paul is a little bit frustrated by that. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Exclamation point. Now, I will admit, I love this passage. I love the fire behind it. You can hear Paul's frustration here. You were doing so well. You were running the race as you had been called. What happened? Who has hindered you? Hinder literally means to impede progress. It's like a a roadblock going up, a a detour sign that sends you off in another direction, makes you veer off your path and, and go in an entirely different direction. Paul asked rhetorically, who has done this? Now, he may not know them by name, but he knows it's the the Judaizers, these false teachers who have been stirring things up. So he rhetorically asks, who has done this? And then he answers his own question. Who has hindered you? Who has blocked you from your run towards truth? Well, I can tell you who it wasn't. It wasn't him who calls you. It wasn't the God who created you. It wasn't Jesus who died for you. It wasn't the Spirit who leads you into all truth. So if it's not the truth, then it's a lie. You're being hindered by a bunch of liars. And then he adds the warning, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, this metaphor is pretty clear, uh, especially during this you know, pandemic-inspired bread-baking frenzy that I keep reading about. We know how yeast works. You just take just, just a little bit, and it spreads through and affects the whole lump of dough, which is a great thing for baking, not a great thing for false teaching. So this little truth nugget here about, level, about leaven works on a couple levels. I think first Paul is implying that if you believe in the false teachers in this circumcision deal, you know, as a requirement for salvation, you're more likely to buy into the next lie that they tell you down the road. That dreaded slippery slope begins. You're allowing their influence, these false teachers, you're allowing their influence of lying and deception to grow in you. And then as it grows in you and you're impacting other people around you, well, now you begin to influence other people with lie and deception. And then perhaps the local church, your local church buys into it. And then that that local church starts spreading to another local church. And it's likely this deception will spread then from church to church. And Paul is worried, I think, that what is starting at perhaps a local regional level could begin to expand beyond the region of Galatia. And it could begin a big problem. So he's calling for us all to be on guard, to see the error, to see the lie, and reject it. There's an old saying which says, we are all theologians. Theos is the Greek word for God, and logos means word, the word of God, literally what it means. So this means that anyone who has ever talked about God, said the name God, thought about God, in any way, good, bad, or indifferent, you're a theologian. So the question becomes then, 
Do you have good theology or do you have bad theology? Now, good theology, we would argue here, this is the very, very small nutshell version, but good theology is a robust, life-impacting belief system which lines up with what God has told us about himself, what is revealed in his word. We believe what it says, we try to live what it says, that's what we strive for. It is often referred to as the narrow way. It has limitations. While bad theology is a slightly bigger category. What is sometimes referred to as the wider way, if you will. It could be as simple as rejecting just one element of God's word, like denying the Trinity, for example. That's bad theology. Or as simple as adding a plus sign to the Jesus saves equation, adding baptism or adding circumcision. That would be bad theology. It could mean as much as rejecting the very presence of God. Certainly bad theology, we would say. Or choosing to worship at the far extreme then, choosing to worship his enemy, the devil. That would be bad theology from our perspective, from God's perspective. So bad theology is a pretty big, diverse group. But the truth is, we are all theologians, and our theology matters. Even in Christian circles, we are seeing the effects of the leavening power of bad theology. We see the international growth of the prosperity gospel movement. We've been seeing the international growth of the new apostolic movement, where people, right now in the last weeks and months, where people are listening to lying men rather than a holy God. I don't know if you were paying attention to this or not, but there were dozens of self-styled, self-appointed, supposed prophets who boldly predicted that Donald Trump would be president again, winning by a landslide. They were wrong. Even after election day, they said, oh no, it's not over yet. Wait till inauguration day. God's going to do this mighty work, and Donald Trump is going to be president again. He told me. Now, our own personal thoughts on the reliability of the election are less important than the main point of the argument here, which is they were wrong. Uncle Joe was sworn in as president. With whatever optics you choose to view this last election, Trump did not win the vote, and he was not installed as president. So these supposed prophets are by definition now false prophets. But there are many, many Christians who continue to support these failed men who are misrepresenting God. It's shameful. It's harmful. It's dangerous. And the prosperity gospel and the apostolic movement are both very works-based faith systems. It's disguised as biblical gospel, but they are, in fact, a bunch of slick-talking shysters who want to hinder you from following the truth. But their message is appealing. I mean, who doesn't want to believe that the Lord wants you to be wealthy now? Or to have your own jet. We got to fly on a private jet once. It was awesome. On an emotional level, I totally want that. (laughs) But it's not true that the Lord wants me to have a jet now. He is far less concerned with my financial well-being or my travel plans than he is about my spiritual well-being. 
And to be honest, we've said it before, we'll continue to say it, the church has already bought into that mindset more than we should. As a church, as a, as a global church, we tend to think that financially successful people are more blessed by God than middle class or lower class people. We just do. Those, those lower class people, those poorer Christians, they just don't have God's favor as much. But you know what? If their faith was stronger... You know, if, I bet if they prayed more, if they spoke in tongues, and you see how you start checking these lists off of things you should do to win God's favor, God will make you wealthy too. But when we look at the whole of Scripture, that's just not the case. That's not what it says. There's far too much talk about Christians enduring and persevering. Jesus said, the world hates me. Guess what? They're not going to love you either. You're going to be persecuted for my name's sake, and we think that's going to come in the forms of 50s and 100s? I mean, look at Paul, the writer of this book and others. Paul experienced an enormous amount of pain and suffering. If the equation is more faith equals more wealth and ease and comfort, then Paul was doing it wrong. Paul must have had negative faith. He had integer faith. In this very paragraph, Paul says, I am being persecuted even now for speaking the truth. It would be easier to say, yeah, let's just get circumcised. If that's the way the wind is blowing, let's just get circumcised. Then your spiritual problems will be solved. It it would be easier to say that. People would stop attacking me personally. They'd stop attacking my character. It would just be easier, Paul says, but it wouldn't be true. So I will continue to preach the cross. And make no mistake, it is the message of the cross that is offensive. The message that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The message that we are going to die in our sins and we will be committed to an eternity in hell without a Savior. You need to submit your life and your will to an almighty God. You're not good enough on your own. You can't earn it. That's what offends people. It's a lot easier for us to hear, hey, here's how you can help yourself. Here's how to live your best life now. Follow this 10-step program to spiritual maturity and lose inches while you sleep. You can feel Paul bursting with anger at the false teachers here, those who would intentionally hinder the spiritual growth of others over something so silly as circumcision. So he says, I want those who unsettled, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Whew. Kind of sounds like a daddy trying to protect his kids, doesn't it? He's had it with the liars. If they're, if they're trying to get his church, his children, to fall away from God with a little bit of snip, well, I wish they'd go ahead and cut it all off then. That would serve him right. But then from this, this moment of anger and, and outrage, and justified, righteous anger and outrage, Paul now goes back to talking to his family. Reminding, pleading, reasoning with them. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
So Paul comes full circle now. He started off with, he, he says here, you were called the freedom brothers. And remember, we started chapter 5 with, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. You now have freedom. So again, I'm urging you, don't blow it. Don't move back into slavery through circumcision, and don't squander your salvation. Don't squander grace and use it as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So this is really kind of interesting. I think for the first 12 verses here, Paul is saying, don't lose your freedom. Don't fall back into legalism. Don't fall back into the law and give up your salvation in the process by making the bad decision to get circumcised as a means to salvation. Don't lose your faith. And here in the last couple of chapters, he says, don't lose your faith and don't abuse your faith. Don't misunderstand your freedom as a hall pass to go right on sinning. Freedom from the consequence of sin does not mean freedom to sin as much as you like. Does Paul know human beings or not? He knows we like our pendulum swings. We go too far this way, so we overreact. Over This idea of freedom to sin is often referred to as antinomianism. Here's how you spell it in case you need notes. Antinomianism literally means against the law. The idea that sprang up around this, this faulty idea and belief, is that as followers of Christ, as recipients of God's grace, obtained through faith that has resulted in our salvation and forgiveness of sins, now we are no longer beholden to the law of any kind. We don't live under any law. We are under God's grace. We're not subject to the demands of the law. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. And we're free from its demands. And that's kind of what we've been talking about in terms of slavery. We're not beholden to that old law anymore. But antinomianism takes this idea and misapplies it. It stretches it to mean something that it was not intended to mean. I mean, even on a logical basis... None of us, I don't think, would seriously say, well, I'm a Christian now, I believe that Christ died for my sins, I'm living under grace, so I'm free to do whatever I want. The law says, don't kill, but that guy makes me kind of mad. And since I'm not beholden to the law, the law says, don't worship other gods. But that doesn't apply to me, because I'm under grace now. I mean, logically, it's just complete nonsense. It doesn't free us to do whatever. But the idea of that kind of freedom sure appeals to our old nature. Now, we may not go around killing people, but our antinomian spirit might say, but watching a little porn now and again, that's not so bad. That, that's covered under grace. Cheating on my spouse, that's, that's covered under grace. So we take this idea of freedom, misunderstood and misapplied, and it becomes, we think, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's an easy justification for our tendency towards sin. And it's wrong. Paul deals with this in other places. Romans 6.15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means! Exclamation point. That would be illogical. That would be stupid. It would be against all of the other teaching of Scripture which Paul alludes to here in our, in our text in Galatians 5. He even quotes Jesus in verse 14. What it frees us to do is love our neighbor as ourself. 
Our freedom does provide us with an incredible sense of liberty, that, that our many sins are forgiven. It eliminates the guilt and the, and the sense of dread that we often associate with our sins. It ensures that we can experience eternity in our Father's heaven. But it also allows us to function freely as we were intended, as we were created, to live lives that are pleasing to a holy God, to live lives of spiritual worship, which, in essence, Paul writes, makes us living sacrifices. So we're supposed to forego and abandon the cheap, casual sins that seek to enslave us while we work towards Christ-likeness. It gives us freedom to serve others. Ephesians 2.10, Paul also writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do whatever we feel like doing, because the law doesn't apply to us, so we can do whatever we want with no regard for the will of God or the clear teaching of Scripture. Oh, I typed it wrong. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for more than serving our own fleshly desires. So Paul warns us, don't let that pendulum swing too far the other way, from from legalism on one side to antinomianism on the other side. We are free, absolutely we're free, which frees us up to love our neighbors better. It frees us up to love our neighbors more consistently. Paul's encouraging here the church to be the church. To be salt and light. To live lives of faithful worship. Well, then there's this final word of warning. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Well, that sounds pretty ominous and a little bit scary. So I'm going to save that for next week. But let's recap what we've covered here today. Christ died for our freedom. Freedom from the consequences of our sin. We can't do anything to earn it. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter the good work that you do in the community. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We can't add anything to the process of salvation. Jesus alone has done it. When we try to add to it, It becomes like everything else man touches. We mess it up. We distort it. It gets all screwy. So Paul takes great pains here to keep us focused on the pure gospel by showing us examples of false gospels. The false gospel of legalism understates the the comprehensiveness of Christ's death, and it overstates our responsibility to work towards our salvation. And the false gospel of antinomianism overstates Christ's death to the degree that it says it saves us from everything for all time ever. It doesn't matter what our motivation is. Regardless of our own lack of faith, regardless of our own deep depravity, antinomianism allows us to live a life free from any rules, enjoying our spiritual and moral freedom while minimizing the agony of the cross and minimizing our response to God's grace. In both cases, what it does is it shifts our focus and takes, a, takes our eyes off of God the Father who created us, takes our eyes off of the Son of God who died for us, and in both cases, the focus lands on us. What I can do. Where we get to ignore the clear will of God. And that's always going to be a problem. 
because we are always the problem. Which is why we are called to regularly remember Christ's sacrifice made on our behalf by celebrating communion. I mean, even the word communion, the very word suggests that the Christian life is not about us as individuals. We worship in community as a body of believers. We observe communion as a group together. We observe communion knowing that it's been celebrated since the time of Jesus. For some reason, this really struck me this week. We observe communion and joining with the entire history, the, the roster of saints who have gone before us. That's an amazing thing to think about. We do it together. We observe communion knowing that we commemorate the death of Christ who died for us so that we can be in communion with him. So I encourage you as we prepare for communion this morning, search your heart and see what your motivations are. See if you need a little spiritual tune-up in some area. Confess sins. Experience God's grace all over again so that we can celebrate together this great gift of mercy. We can celebrate that for this freedom, Christ has made us free. I'm going to pray. Worship team, come up. Uh, whoever is going to be dispensing, um, we'll pass out the elements as we sing, and then we'll hold it and we'll take it all together when we're done here. Not just for the chance together to, to worship in community, but for the chance to remember, to reflect again on this overwhelming gift of grace that's been provided for us. This freedom that we have, freedom from our past, doesn't matter what they are. Uh, freedom from our past sin, freedom from our present sin, even freedom from future sin can be covered by grace. And I think sometimes we just, we don't really comprehend the enormity of that. Lord, I pray that we don't fall into the abuse of it either, that it does not give us the idea that we can continue to sin more freely. We can continue to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture and, and camp too heavily on the abuse of grace. But Lord, may it serve to remind us that we were created for good works, that you've already created for us well before we showed up. Lord, may we be, may we be found faithful in what you have created us to be, how you have called us to live. And I pray that as we pre prepare for communion here that uh, any unresolved sins, any issues that we need to deal with would, would come to mind, that uh, we would confess sins, that we would purify our, our hearts, and we would check our motivations and make sure that we are trying to do the right things for the right reasons and to be better stewards of your grace and love. We thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture.